Radio Mano Papachango. Coming to you from the van. Uh, we're uh, down near um, Big Bend National Park in southern Texas as I record this. Don't know where or when I will upload it. Some Starbucks along the way, hopefully. But um, this episode is with uh, a woman I've known for years now, four or five years, uh, Diana Adams. She's a really whip-smart lawyer and a wonderful person. She has dedicated her career to helping people with unconventional family uh, structure. So uh, lesbian couples who want to adopt children, people who have um, relationships involving three people and property and all this kind of all the legal things that can come up when the world is set up for a certain kind of relationship and you are find yourself in a different kind of relationship. She could be making a lot more money uh, supporting the status quo, but instead she is what I would call, uh, I think she would agree, a legal activist who is using her expertise and her substantial education and uh, very impressive intelligence to make the world a better, more compassionate and more accepting place. I'm really proud to call her a friend. And uh, after you listen to this, I think you'll see why. This is another commercial-free podcast coming at you. If you want to support it, you know how to do it. Uh, and I appreciate all the support that's coming through on Patreon, through uh, positive uh, reviews on iTunes, you know, or negative, I guess, if they're constructively uh, critical, and, uh, you know, all the other ways, telling your friends and so on and so forth. So thank you for your support. Hope you enjoy this conversation. And uh, this is one of those episodes where I think, you know, we're all learning a lot uh, from somebody who's got a lot to teach. So thank you to Diana for making the time and for the work that you do, helping people who really need it and who have very few resources. So that's a wonderful thing to do with your life. Hope you enjoy this, everybody. Greetings from Big Bend National Park in Southern Texas. All right, I'm sitting in uh, a part of New York that I didn't know existed until last night when I got an email from today's guest, Diana Adams. Diana, right? It's not Diane. Diana. Right? Diana Adams. I always have that moment of insecurity when I say someone's name. <laughs> I'm fucking it up. Uh, Dumbo. What the fuck is Dumbo? I down, lived in New York for years. I never heard of Dumbo. Down under Manhattan Bridge overpass. It is a lovely, uh, hip, beautiful place uh, with beautiful views of Manhattan. See, when I lived here, and this was like a wasteland out here. It still does yeah. have trash compacting sites, but fancy yeah. lost on top of them now. <laughs> <laughs> You're so lucky you live near the trash compactor. Yeah. Well, I couldn't afford that. So we're in Dumbo, and if you hear a rumbling sound, what is that, the A train out there? The A train, yeah, right over the Manhattan Bridge. We're looking at the bridge. Oh, here it comes now. There's the A train, ladies and gentlemen. Take the A train. Made famous by, was that Miles Davis? Did they take the A train? Is that one of his classics? I wish I remembered that. Yeah, I don't. There's a, it's a jazz classic, because it goes up to uh, Harlem. Right. Right. So anyway, Diane Adams, you and I have known each other for seven years or something since Sex at Dawn came out. Yeah. After. I was a I was a big fan of Sex at Dawn and still am. Well, and I posted something online um, about how, what a great book it was, wrote my own little review. And to my surprise, you commented back and said, thanks, I like your work too, ah. which was great. Yeah. See, I was lurking. <laughs> it was great. Wonderful. I was delighted to... I've learned not to do that as much. Yeah, it was great to hear back from you. Yeah. Uh, you sort of imagine that an author is somebody off way off in the distance. So yeah. I appreciated you being Not in touch. these days. We're all lurking, seeing what people say about us. Our Twitter. I just saw this morning something uh, on Reddit because I have a, a name alert in Google, you know. So oh, I do so too. Someone talks about Christopher. A lot of Christopher Ryers are doing some real fucked up shit these days. 
Really? Yeah, yeah. Mm. A guy just exposed himself you know, in front of a school last week named Christopher Ryan. That was nice to see. Yeah. I'm pretty lucky. The other Diana Adamses are mostly doing things in tech or painting pictures or doing ballet. Good thing. They're not yeah. showing their junk to nope. children. That's nope. good. That's good. Uh, yeah, anyway, this thing I saw this morning was like someone commented, you know, uh, Sex of Dawn is so full of science, pseudoscientific bullshit that real scientists had to come out and debunk it in a book called Sex at Dusk. And do you know about Sex at Dusk? No. Oh, it's this mysterious refutation. It's a book, self-published book, a refutation of Sex at Dawn. Oh, wow, by, that's a compliment. Yeah, exactly. Written by someone under a false name. Hmm. So it's very... Uh, yeah, the whole thing is very kind of... And I was like, oh, I should go and, you know, point out that... No, it's like, oh, <laughs> no, no, don't even engage. And here I am engaging. Right, right. It's hard not to engage. I mean, it's it's both creepy and flattering that somebody took the time to write a whole refutation yeah. of your book. Um, and at the same time, totally bizarre. If, if they want to be taken seriously as a scientist refuting your claims, you can't use a fake name. That's what I felt. It's, like it's, make it's not like I'm Vladimir Putin or something. You know, I'm not going to order a hit on a critic. Right. So I don't really get it unless it's... I, I have no idea. I can't explain it. It's a very strange thing. It is a really bizarre move. Yeah. Yeah. But it's weird. People get weird around sex. You may have noticed that in your work. I have noticed that, have actually. Noticed that? Yes, people By get way, really, really weird and let's awkward. Let's tell people what you do and why you're, you're, yeah. you're one of the good ones. Thank you. I'm trying. <laughs> trying to keep uh, giving lawyers a good name sometimes. <laughs> well, less bad name. Yeah. yeah I don't know. I, I'm a lawyer and a family mediator, and I work with polyamorous families, people in non-traditional family structures, right. like platonic co-parents, um, and uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender clients and help them with forming family with intention, with setting up co-parenting agreements, with setting up their financial agreements, deciding what it is they want to create uh, as three people, as four people, um, and try to help keep them out of court uh, if things are dissolving and do mediation and collaborative law in those kinds of situations. And you're walking away from hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in order to do this, I'm guessing. Absolutely, I could be yeah. making a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, I, I could be a partner to a big law firm right now doing lots of other things and that would not be fulfilling for me. Right. Um, I, I tried out the big law thing and helping corporations uh, get tax breaks or trying to squash employment discrimination lawsuits by reaming through everybody's emails for the past 10 years to prove that they were sending social emails at work. So we didn't fire you because you're black, we fired you because you were sending social emails at work. Mm. I mean, that is the devil's work if anything is. Yeah. Um, I didn't I didn't pack all this education into my brain to do that uh, and sell my 20s working 80 hours a week nonetheless. So, how, so, how long did um, you last in that world? I was a summer associate. Oh. Yeah, but in the boom days when I got paid $30,000 to be a summer associate just for the summer, um, put on 20 pounds happily because I was, you know, could bill $50 for lunch and $50 for dinner for any meal in any, you know, restaurant in the city and enjoyed all of those perks, but knew I was not coming back, so I better go out to lunch now. Uh, um, oh, you knew right away? I, I could tell it was not for me. I mean, one, yeah. of, the, one of the projects that I did was... Uh, reading through asbestos litigation that was supposed to be making the asbestos companies pay for removing asbestos safely from small town, working class uh, municipalities, school districts, elementary schools, uh, that the asbestos companies had to pay for that and that they had to give reparations to the families whose dads died, working class families whose dads died at, at 40 because they were asbestos installers. Um, my job was to read through the uh, legislation and find the loopholes so that they company, the companies wouldn't have to pay. Right. And then they bought my memo for like $10,000 a pop. And it just felt disgusting. It was, it was one of the dirtiest things I've ever done. Yeah. And I've had a full life. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other dirty things. Right, right. Done. More fun, dirty things. Uh, yeah, no. I, why did you go to law school, Diana? I went to law school because I wanted to be able to be a more effective activist for social justice issues, feminist uh, issues. I wanted to be an agent of social change, and I thought that law would give me um, 
both an insurance policy that I wouldn't starve and would have marketable skills if I needed them, but also a set of tools to be able to actually really understand our government, understand our legal system, so that I could have those tools at my disposal to use as needed um, in trying to make change. Right. And I've been involved with environmental issues and anti-poverty issues and feminist issues and LGBTQ issues. Um, and. I see what I do as very intersectional with all of those things. Mm. I have been f disappointed lately. I I've heard some comments about the sort of poly and LGBTQ issues that I work on supporting these kinds of families as luxury, luxury social justice issues, right? Yeah. And um, of course, I mean, there are people who are being killed in the street by police officers. That's absolutely critical and anybody who cares about anything justice related needs to be concerned about that about immigrants about you know uh, the atrocities that are happening in the world yeah. at the same time I think that that sexuality and relationships are often left behind as non-essential mm. and it does not have to be either or and if we wait for a world in which there are no horrible violent problems in order to prioritize our sexuality and our personal relationships and create fulfilling family, we'll never make time for that. Yeah. And we've done very well for hundreds of years not making time for that necessarily or making that not a priority. And, and I think we're still dealing with this cultural shame that um, you, know, you may be in a monogamous relationship, a monogamous marriage, and then your partner decides that they have you know, maybe they, a woman just had, had a baby and does not want to have sex anymore, has unilaterally decided, I'm not having sex anymore and we're monogamous, therefore your sex life is over for the rest of your life, done. And traditionally in couples therapy, that's the prototypical issue that brings people to couples therapy. And if the man cheats in that situation, he's supposed to write an apology letter to his ex-wife, or to his wife, an apology letter to the woman he cheated with, um, and just basically get slapped on the wrist and told he needs to just be celibate and suck it up. And I think we come from that kind of cultural tradition of pushing down our sexuality is something that's non-essential. We should be able to rise above our, that animal nature. Right. Um, and as you well know, that doesn't, that doesn't work for people very well. And yeah. so I think that it's, what I'm doing is supporting people to create the family and the relationships that they want to create, to be able to parent the way they want to parent, to be able to be in a romantic relationship the way they want to and have the legal protections that they deserve while they're doing that. And I do see that as intersectional with all of the other justice issues that are out there right now, that, right. that we can be pursuing Black Lives Matter and we can be you know, working um, for a better world in many ways and at the same time be really personally fulfilled. And I've found that for me, um, I'm actually a better activist when I have a wonderful, fulfilling personal life. Right. And when I've you know, made that something which is expendable and haven't made any time for myself, I'm not actually as effective in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, not to mention the number of people who are living on the streets because their families can't tolerate their sexuality and kick them out. Right. You know, something Dan, our mutual friend Dan Savage talks about a lot. Absolutely. Um, the way these, the intolerance of non-traditional uh, sexual configurations ripples out into the culture in so many different ways. Absolutely. Causing violence and, you know. I, I often think about a lot of these mass shootings and, I mean, I, I don't know. I have to be careful how I talk about this stuff, but because um, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying, and it's very charged stuff. But a lot of these mass shootings, these guys, uh, I remember there was one who, where he actually wrote, I'm going to die a virgin. Remember the, wow. the guy in Roseburg, Oregon, I think it was, who uh, shot up the, the community college where he was studying. And there was another one down in Southern California. The guy shot a bunch of people. And there's, one of the common threads in this is rage fueled by sexual frustration. Mm -hmm. And I, the reason I say I need to be careful about this is I'm not blaming women. I don't in any way want to come across as if I am, but it's it. You look at the the incredible misogyny and the violence against women and the hatred and all this weird, twisted shit, this Harvey Weinstein shit, this going, all this crazy stuff that's happening. And from my perspective, it just seems like this. a lot of this stuff is fueled by this blanket shame that we have around sexuality, that men blame women. You know, a lot of men blame women for their frustration. And 
hate themselves, you know, then turn that inward and then it erupts as rage. I don't know, I'm not, I'm not articulating it very clearly, but I guess what I'm saying is that it seems, have you read James Prescott's work on the intersection of violence and sexual behavior? I keep meaning to, I haven't yet. Uh, it's, it's just one, one essay where he really lays it all out. I'll, I'll, I've heard I'll about email that. you the PDF, it's 20 pages or something. Great. But uh, he, he did this meta-analysis of societies and I think the factors he looked at were how long women breastfeed their babies and how tolerant the society is of adolescent sexual behavior on one side. And then he looked at intra and intercultural violence. So the violence committed within the society and then also warfare and, and you know, skirmishes with other societies. And he found that of the 18 societies that had enough data you know, from anthropologists to look at all those factors, 17 of them there was an inverse correlation. So the more women, the longer women were in physical contact with their babies and the more tolerant the societies were of adolescent sexual exploration, the less violence there was. And so it, it's not a, it's correlation, not causation being demonstrated, but it seems to me that violent warlike societies create frustration. Absolutely, you know? and, and I think that we need intimacy and touch, yeah. and in our culture we separate out, um, uh, we isolate people so that if they don't have a sexual partner they may not have experienced any loving touch yeah. uh, in years and years, and, and that maybe doesn't... Ever. Maybe, maybe ever. Maybe even from their, from their mothers, you right. know, because mothers are maybe. shamed about breastfeeding. And right. Yeah, it's... it's really and uh, yeah, so I, I definitely think there's we, we really have that, we have a need to be able to connect and create relationships in our own way yeah. um, and create relationships and connections that work for people. And in some situations that isn't necessarily sexual. I work with people sure. who are groups of friends who want to formalize that. And uh, my, my example is often the Golden Girls. If the Golden Girls wanted to buy a condo together um, oh, right. or have, okay. have each other as healthcare proxies if they go into the hospital right. and have hospital visitation access and things like that. Um, those are the kinds of people that I help sometimes. Or, so you must be running into so much structural resistance though because the whole society is set up around this very specific family model and you're... Right. You're trying, now how, what are you doing? Are you, I mean, you're obviously not trying to get new legislation passed to, to change the definition of what constitutes a family, right? I mean, you're working at a more grassroots level. I'm working at a more grassroots level with, with individuals primarily to support them in creating what they want to create. And so I often will try to cobble together with the tools that we do have the, the powers of attorney, the healthcare proxies, the wills and estate mm. planning, um, you can do a lot with private contract and mm. try to help people by asking them what they actually do want to create and helping right. them figure that out sometimes. Right. And then using the legal pieces that we can put together maybe getting married is the useful answer, but I think people need to realize that getting married is one legal tool. Right. And that getting married uh, legally is very different than just the romantic vision that we have. You're signing up for over a thousand different rights and responsibilities and you'll become a financial unit before the government and you're basically a social welfare state of two so that if one of you falls on hard times, the government doesn't have to pay for you. Right. Doesn't have to pay your rehab bill. Your spouse can pay for that. Right. Uh, doesn't have to pay your credit card bill. Um, so that you you lean on each other uh, financially and that is one powerful way to be in relationship with each other but it's not necessary for being uh, intimate partners and being people who are connected to each other. And do you um, just work with New York law or is this a federal thing? I work with clients um, in, under New York law particularly but I also do consulting on cases nationwide uh -huh. and with clients in Europe as well. Oh, I work really? with Americans in Europe now from our second office in Frankfurt, Germany. Right. So. Um, I'm able to oh, give sorry, basic you, advice about that. You've been living in Germany recently. That's yeah, right. I go back and forth between New York City and Germany now. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that's been interesting to see the different kinds of um, family configurations um, that that I encounter, um, and the different people who identify as non-traditional families. Um, I'm working with a really beautiful family, wonderful family in which. Uh, the husband and wife, traditional husband and wife, the wife had a disabling injury. 
and is now somewhat mentally and physically disabled. And then for 10 years, the husband has basically become her caretaker. And at a certain point, she gave him her blessing to be able to go forward and have another romantic connection. And then um, he's made that new romantic connection, had a child with that other person, and we I did a legal analysis analysis for them about what it would look like if he were to divorce his, his original wife who's disabled and she needs his health insurance and she, they need to stay married for legal reasons. It benefits them to stay married. So I'm helping them figure out how they can incorporate this other female partner into this relationship and now they're all moving into a house together with my support uh, with the original disabled wife having a relationship with the child um, and living together as a beautiful family and it's not about sex yeah it's about mutual interdependence and support right and that really works for people uh, and I think that it's uh, powerful to open people up to other images of what family can look like yeah. those kinds of other um, images of really beautiful support of one another um, and companionship and creating home together uh, and, and that can look like so many things other than an isolated mom and a dad and a kid in a ranch house somewhere and I think we're seeing we're seeing more and more that people are exhausted with that model especially if you have two working parents we're outsourcing our child care to strangers who are on a revolving door sometimes and, and there's nothing wrong with having nannies but I think it's also possible to recreate a bit more of that extended family network right now what do you say I, I have friends who are thinking they're a married couple and there's a, another guy involved and uh, they're thinking of having a child that guy with the wife um like, what would you say to somebody who's looking at going into a situation like that? The, the couple are quite wealthy. The guy isn't. He's, I mean, because I was talking with him about it, and, and I was thinking, like, you know, I know nothing about this legally, right? But it seems to me that they, the couple holds all the cards. You know, you, you, what's the word, impregnate this woman. Legal, I guess they could go after him for child care, or they could just cut him off entirely. I mean, I, it's a very complicated situation. I guess you've dealt with things like this. Absolutely. Uh, and so I, do, I deal with many families like that and really try to sit down and hash out what we're, what we're trying to create right. and take them through the really challenging potential hypotheticals and right, the things that could exactly. go wrong and really talk through them. Yeah. Um, and, and try to help people, in particular in these kinds of situations, to be really clear about whether you want a sperm donor or a father. Right. Because you need to pick a side, both legally and for the sake of the child's you know, clarity about yeah. who this person is in their life, yeah. that everyone's on the same page about that. Yeah. Uh, because what often happens, I'll see lesbian couples um, uh, who are saying, well, we have a, a guy friend who's going to help us. Well, what yeah. does that mean, help you? You know, is he going to help you just by donating the sperm and then right. has, you know, severing the rights and responsibilities of a parent? Because if you're a dad, you can't be partly a dad legally. And, mm. um, and, and so if you're going to be the biological dad and not sever rights as a sperm donor, then you at any point could have the responsibility to pay child support right? and would have the right to at any point petition for visitation or child custody. So you can't write up documents that override these, this legal structure? When it comes to kids in particular, um, you can't necessarily make a contract about the child's rights before the government. Right. And so the child always will have the right to get financial support from their parent or to see their parent. Mm. And the governing standard in New York and many other states is the best interest of the child. Mm. And so you can make, for example, in New York State, a sperm donor agreement. Um, and sperm donor agreements are treated differently in different states and different countries. So, so that man a, a very, is not a parent. So that man is not a parent, basically okay. saying, I'm, right. I'm donating my sperm, this is a gift, uh, and I'm, I have no rights as a father. Right. However, if you do what some people do, uh, which is a bad legal move, and they just download a sperm donor agreement from the internet, sign it, but maybe have the man sign the birth certificate as a father, which is legally contradictory, right. or just 
as a father. I mean, you can sign a sperm donor agreement, but if then the guy is picking up the kid after school two nights a week and taking care of them and being called dad, then at some point if he petitions for visitation, he's a dad. Um, and so the actual needs of the child are going to come over any kind of piece of paper that you make. And so it's important that people get really clear. Right. What I see sometimes is that it will be... Uh, the man will present himself as a dad when he's on the playground or something, but when it comes time to chip in for the private school, he's a sperm donor, right? And, <laughs> exactly. and then the mom will do the yeah. inverse of that, where yeah. when it's time to, you know, a family holiday where she feels awkward being alone, yeah. now the kid's got a dad to come along, so right. she's not the only one who doesn't have a dad with her. Yeah. But then when it comes time to make a decision, he's just a sperm donor, he doesn't get a say, right? You can't have it both ways because yeah. those are the situations that have imploded uh, and leaving the child really confused about yeah. who this person is in their life. And so I just try to help people whenever there's a child involved to make that child's needs the absolute priority mm. and to really think about what this what this means. So in this situation that you presented, um, if they did want to co-parent, if they did want this person to be involved in their family as a third parent, I would take them through what that means. You know, what if he does he get a third equal vote? What if right. he's against vaccinations? What if he? What if your child right. has special needs and he's against sending the child to private school ever? What if he hooks ever? up with another woman now? What's what's her right? Right. You what know? is her connection? Yeah. Are you open? Uh, whenever there's whenever there's people who are not uh, who are open to romantic connections, whether because they're single or they're polyamorous, then there's the question of how would you relate to new potential partners? Are you open to there being a new person? Mm. Um, and after how long would they be integrated into the family, if at all? Would, yeah. the, would they ever be be like a parent? Would they? Would you ever be open to them living with, you know, with the family? Would, would each of the three parents so, get, to, get I a mean, vote? how do you even talk about these things when it's dependent upon who that other person is, right? It, yeah, it's, it's incredibly it's difficult. Really, it sounds to it's me tricky. like like you're you're not only navigating these very complicated legal structures, but you're probably doing a lot of therapy as well. Right, I'm a family mediator, and a lot of what I do is the counselor part of being a lawyer. Yeah. And but did you have to go to school for that, or how does that work? I have training as a family mediator, yeah. um, and that's a subdivision of law. That was something I did after law school. You can be you can be a mediator without being a lawyer. Oh, okay. Many lawyers, many, many so mediators like a certificate are lawyers. Thing, like yeah, you can get extra training. Psychology. Right. right. So I've, I've done okay. a several different training programs in that, and uh, then um, also extra training in being a collaborative lawyer for dispute resolution. Right. But then part of it comes from just my own interests. I did rape crisis counseling right. and domestic violence victim support, and uh, a lot of what I do involves the emotional aspects of uh, my clients' lives, um, and that's just something that I like to geek out about. I, I was smiling because I, when you talked about how you'd done these other things, I, was, I noticed earlier as I was talking about something that your gaze was absolutely neutral. And it made me a little uncomfortable for a second because because you weren't sort of like nodding like I get what you're saying. And I was like, am I not making any sense? She's being like she's absolutely neutral here. And then it's like it's, you probably developed Sorry, that over the years. Sorry, it was probably my, my, my mediator face. Yeah, you're right. like I'm giving nothing away here. <laughs> I keep talking. Giving keep you talking. therapeutic listening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you went into law already. This wasn't some crisis you had after you you were. You went into it saying, "I need to know this stuff because I want to change the way things work." How, where Where does this go back to? Were your parents political activists or something? Where's all this my stuff dad from? was involved with the Right to Life Party in upstate New York. Here we as, go. As a child, and now uh, it's getting my, juicy. My parents were very, very conservative. My dad in particular yeah. was very conservative. Upstate New York, what part? Um, near Albany. Uh, I grew up in a small town near Albany. Uh, I lived um, in upstate New York for oh, really? a while. Yeah, Casanova. It's wow. near Syracuse, Finger ah, Lakes. Okay, yeah, I went to school at Cornell, so I lived in Ithaca as well. Uh, I went to Hobart, just up the road. Oh. My best friend went to Cornell. I spent a lot of time in Ithaca. You read at the Slovakia house? Yes. Greek pizza. Yeah. Yeah. A cop came in and arrested me there one night. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another story. Another story. I went there on 9-11, actually. Oh, really? I cried there at 9-11 and watched the TVs. In the Slovakia house? Yeah. Or, oh, really? Yeah. Holy cow. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, so upstate New York and my dad was very very conservative and we, mm. I grew up in this fundamentalist Christian family ah. and in my small working class public school we did not um, have sex education at school right. and 
I was starting to have classmates at nine and ten who were getting pregnant. What? And yeah, uh, really, really young. And one of my friends was impregnated by her mother's boyfriend uh, in a definite statutory rape situation. I mean, she was ten. Yeah. Uh, and. I was trying to help her figure out what to do, and I was crying and crying about it for days, and my dad was asking me what's wrong, and he was worried, and he said, you can tell me anything. And I told him what had happened, and he thought she was going to hell. And I had a eureka moment of crisis of, oh my God, dad's full of shit. Yeah. If the church thinks that, they must be full of shit too. This can't be. You were how old? I was also 10. You were 10 as well. I was 10. Oh my God. And so this was um, a huge moment for me of always just sort of trusting my parents and trusting the church that I was part of. Yeah. Um, and then at a certain point, I was angry at that point because it, my, my thought was, where were you? Where were you before this happened with sex education or giving her some sort of support or getting her out of this bad home situation? You're just going to judge her afterward? That, that cannot be the God that I know. That, that cannot be that that's the justice in the world and that's, that's the ethics that we're living under. So I got really involved from then on. I snuck off to the Bryn Mawr bookstore in Albany um, and started reading Our Bodies, Ourselves and feminist literature. And they knew who my dad was and they were always like slipping me oh, really? feminist literature. Uh, and for a while there, my dad was uh, organizing protests at Planned Parenthoods and I would be getting the information and just sort of the little girl who's bringing pie out to all the guys who are organizing the protest and then I would hide in the closet and call Planned Parenthood and tip them off and I remember being there serving the pie and then being like there's somebody who's telling them every single time there's a counter protest that's way bigger than what we are and we can't figure out what it is and I'm like would you like more pie Um, and got my start there and got really passionate about sex education Where, where was your mom in this? My mom was always a bit passive and for a long time just sort of went with what my dad told her to do, you know, and went along with my dad's values. Um, But at a certain point, um, she really agreed with me and has now been totally supportive. She's going to come to the Monogamish premiere we're both speaking at tonight. Oh. Um, And my mom was absolutely in support. And uh, you have siblings? No siblings, just me. No siblings. Yeah. So you were behind the lines... You were an informant. I was an informant. For Planned Parenthood. I was an when informant you were when I was like, like 10, 10 11, and um, an onward. <laughs> <laughs> Did your dad ever figure it out that nope. it was you? Really? Nope. You dad, never got dad, My dad, dear dad, went to the grave not knowing oh. that I was part of that Planned Parenthood thing. But he would probably, he would not have been surprised as an adult, for sure. Because, <laughs> well, I was by the openly, time you... I was openly polyamorous right. and bisexual. Really? And, yeah. Before there was a word for it. Um... No, I I came out as bisexual to my parents when I was about 20 mm. and then came out as polyamorous when I have a vocabulary for that in my mid-20s. Uh, yeah. Because, I, I mean, when I sort of came to the realization that I was non-ethically non-monogamous, there was, I, I'd never heard the word polyamory. I didn't have a word for it for many years either. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So having been that close to your dad... Do you have any thoughts as to, and I don't mean to get into your personal business here, just in general, I'm, I'm, I'm very confused by people who are so passionately anti-abortion. I don't really understand it, you know? It's, it's, it is really confusing, and I think that it was a whole journey for me, loving my dad and trying to share space with each other. He had serious health issues uh, during much of my teenage years and my early adulthood. And so I never had the sense of, screw you, Dad, I'll come back in 10 years and let's talk. Because I never wanted that to be our last conversation. There was always a thought that it could be. Um, And so although I've done extensive training in things like mediation, I think I learned the most about communicating by loving my dad and continuing to be with him um, even when we drove each other crazy. And I think I see the way that um, abortion has brought up a lot of fear 
in people about this horrible idea of atrocities um, that's really related to anxiety about sex and women and change in the world. Um, and I think it really gets at a deep place of fear about the, the changing nature of, of sexuality and what family will look like mm. um, in the future. And this sort of more amorphous, what about the children? What's going to happen to family structure yeah. when we have these emancipated women going out and having sex and able to yeah. have an abortion? Uh, I, I think it confronts people in a really deep way in ways they may not even understand. And then I absolutely see the ways that that issue was galvanized so many uh so many people to support the Republican Party when the Republican Party was promoting policies that were against their interest as poor people. Yeah. Um, I remember my dad, uh, my dad was disabled with health issues for much of my life, and I remember him uh, supporting a candidate that was talking about, you know, cutting, cutting people off the dole. It was like, Dad, you've you've been on disability for ten years. Mm. I, I think that might be you, actually, yeah. that you're you're voting to take away your own benefits right, right. now. Um, but it was the issue issues like abortion and issues like gay marriage that bring up this this fear of change in the family, fear of change in our society, um, and a, an affront to those traditional values, uh, an affront to that traditional way of life. And I, it, it's been I have a lot of empathy for how sad it is to have people totally duped into voting against their interests. Yeah. Which yeah. we're still seeing now. Maybe more than ever. I mean, Crazy. more than ever. I mean, yeah. the idea of so many working class white people voting for Trump is just insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. The thing about abortion, I, I mean, I, everything you said there, I feel is legitimate. I, I understand people being afraid of change, especially people who feel vulnerable. And I can understand someone, you know, you describe your, your father having disabilities. I can understand someone in a position like that of vulnerability feeling like, hey, wait a minute, you know, we just start killing people because they're inconvenient, you know, that's right. me, you know, right. hey, I'm inconvenient, you know, and at some age we all become inconvenient if we live that long, right? I, I, it's, when I say I don't understand the anti-abortion thing, I don't want anyone listening to this to think, you know, like I'm, hey, everyone should get an abortion. I, it's a traumatic experience for most of the people who undergo it. But um, what, what I never understand is like the people who are so vehement, they're out there picketing Planned Parenthood and they're, you know, holding up the photos of the, the, the fetuses and all this, but they're not helping homeless kids they're not helping poor kids they're not you know doing after school programs they're they don't give a shit about refugees it's like the the hypo the why so passionate about this one thing this one manifestation of damage to children if we're going to accept that right. definition which i don't but no other manifestation of it that's what i don't understand why is it that so laser focused on this one thing which i think you're you're I agree with you. It's about controlling women. Yeah, it's it's about controlling women um, and controlling sexuality. I think. Yeah. Rather than about children, because yeah, we've seen yeah. very little correlation between people who are pro-life giving any kind of care about what's going on with actual kids who are in the world. Right. Um, yeah, you'd think sex education would be at the top of their list. Right after stopping abortion, it would be make sure all young girls know how sex works and we can avoid this. Right. But nobody's or, avoiding it. Yeah, no, no interest in avoiding it, no interest in providing contraceptives, yeah. and no interest in making sure that kids aren't going hungry at lunch. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it isn't really about it's, kids. It's very, yeah, I, uh, yeah. It's not about kids. I it's, agree. It's, um, and yeah. it, it is really, it's really difficult to find any empathy for that argument, but I try to And what would your stretch. father say? How would he respond to, to that? I'm sure you guys... I think that for him, it would have been that it's wrong. His, it's his emphasis wrong. would have, it, that it's wrong. What, that, what that, about masturbation? Um, I think he was fine with that. Oh, okay. Because it seems to be coming out of the same sort of, like a moral certainty moral certainty you know? right right and he definitely was a lot of shame about premarital sex yeah i was talking with someone just this morning actually uh about the film monogamish that we're both in that we're co-stars in yeah <laughs> here we are a couple of co-stars uh, 
And she said, uh, she commented on my shirt, because I'm wearing a shirt that says 98.7% bonobo. That's me, yeah, I like that. and you, and all mm -hmm. the rest of us. And, uh, and she said, the phrase she used was she said, well, there are some of us who are trying to, um, who are pursuing spiritual enlightenment. And so all this free sexuality is um, uh, interfering with that. And you know, we need to hold the space of, um, of controlling our, our desires and not just running around like animals. So you know, it's this sort of argument. And I was thinking, like, wh how do we get this premise that sexual pleasure is antithetical to spiritual development? You know, for the person I'm Absolutely. talking to, it was for her, it was a given. It's like, oh, you can go have fun or you can be serious. And I was thinking like, okay, you know, all these religions, the, the, you know, you should be either limited to one person or celibate and not even masturbate. Where does this idea come from that sexual pleasure is antithetical to spiritual development? It seems to be very widespread. Yeah, it really does. I agree. And, and it really does relate to this sense of trying to rise above our physical nature and connect with the divine so that we're more godlike than we are animal like. Um, and I like we, gods who fuck though. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? Yeah. But even like, even like ayahuasca, you know, uh, which I respect very much, a lot of these ayahuasca retreats, no sex for 15 days before you go. Why? Hmm. Why? I don't, yeah. I don't see how sexual activity is interfering in any way with the experience of, I mean, you're, right. you're not the person to ask about this, I guess, but it, it seems to be wherever there's spirituality, there seems to be this um, assumption that sex is gonna complicate it or, or block it somehow. Right, absolutely, and, and there's so much shame about um, the body. Uh, I come from that Protestant Christian tradition of you know, the body is what we have to tolerate that carries our head around, you know, right. so that we can have deep godlike thoughts. But we really are always trying to um, prove that we can endure, uh, endure and sacrifice in our animal nature. Even if it's just, I'm gonna kneel on the cold cement floor on my knees for three mm. hours while I'm praying, um, I can rise above the pain of that. I can or rise the above thing the thing in the know. fucking lotus position and right. hit you with a cane. Yeah, I, I never got any of that. Yeah. It's a weird thing. Have you ever done a float tank? Yes, I have. Did you enjoy it? Um, I did. I was a little bit worried about getting the weird salt water in my eyes or my mouth because they gave me so many cautions about that. So I, f I, didn't, I wasn't totally relaxed. It was like, I must lay still and not. I have an <laughs> no itch. Splashing. I no don't splash. splash. <laughs> I, don't want to, I have an itch, but I don't want to splash. Yeah. It, was, it was weird. Uh, you just did it one time? It. I did it one time, yeah. Uh, I, I was not completely in love with it. But yeah, yeah, it was an interesting adventure. I found it. I spoke at a float tank conference this summer. I, oh, wow. I, uh, Duncan Trussell, a comedian friend of, of mine, and I gave a keynote presentation at this float tank conference. Um, yeah, I like floating a lot. But to me, it was like, the reason I mention it is, you know, I spent a lot of time in my life trying to meditate, and I could never get past the physical discomfort. My knees hurt, my back hurts, my neck hurts. And I just sort of like, I'm sitting here, and I'm supposed to transcend this, but I'm just distracted by all this physical discomfort. Mm. And the first, uh, when I mean you know, not the first time, but the third or fourth time I did a float tank, I was like, oh, here I am. I'm in the meditative state, and it doesn't hurt. It doesn't have to. I'm always suspicious when people are like, no pain, no gain. Like, yeah, really? I don't yeah. think anything really needs to hurt. Right. 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 I, I think know? that no pain, no gain is also that sort of, I can endure this. Yeah, it's punish the body. It's punish self, the body. As a friend of mine called it, self-flagellation. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't think that's the word, but yeah. Anyway, we're getting off the, off the topic here. So, <laughs> so uh, but you're, I'm glad we, we talked about where this all started with you. It's, it's uh, so at 10 or 11 or 12, when you saw this little girl going through this thing, you're like, this this doesn't work. The religion right. thing doesn't work. The schooling isn't educating her for the things she really needs. And 
Right. And so I became the uh, informal yeah. sex educator for the school since there wasn't sex education. Yeah. Um, and I, I was a smart girl. Right. Who, this is before internet. I would go to the library and, and, you know, read biology books and then come back and answer questions. Yes, you can still get pregnant if you jump up and down afterwards. That's not going to help. <laughs> um, and so I was, I was the source. Yeah. You know, people would send me these kinds of ridiculous teenage questions. So you were the, um, the little Dan Savage of your school. The huh? mini Dan Savage of my school. Right. And I, uh, so many kids were just getting this terrible information, even from their parents. There was this uh, legend. Moms were telling young girls that if they wore a tampon, and particularly if they sat down in a bathtub with a tampon in, it would stop up the blood to their brain and they would die. What? And it was because they didn't want them to wear a tampon because they thought it would make them unvirginal. Right. They wanted to preserve their virgin, you know, as, as if they're going to get some sort of a, you know, larger, uh, a, better, a better, better marriage deal out of this. I mean, right. it's not like we're talking about trading your daughter and, and measuring what level of... of uh, how many goats you're going to get. Yeah, how many goats you're going to get for what very, amount of hymen she's got. It's bizarre. American culture is so similar to the Taliban, you know? It's yeah. so, so interesting to see how yeah. we're sort of aligned in so many ways. Yeah. With so, Europe in the middle going, what the fuck is going on with you two? Right. Yeah. So I, I will never forget staging a um, enactment of this where I, in front of these sobbing uh, preteen girls, I put a tampon in <laughs> and sat down in a bathtub and they really thought I was going to die. What? No, wait a minute. Yeah. You got to set the like, scene here. Like, this, this is after school one day. Yeah. You're like, all right, I, girls. I, I was like, it's really not true. Come to my Your house. moms are telling you that because they want you to be more virginal. You know, wearing a tampon, you'll still be a virgin. It's not like you're having sex. Tampons are much smaller than penises. Also, why would you stop up your blood to your brain? There's, 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 like, let's let's talk about how arteries and veins work. You know, you were a bad, bad girl. I was a bad girl. You were like a witch, essentially. <laughs> Staging a tampon demonstration. Reminds me of those things early in the colonial American times. Um, nobody would eat tomatoes because tomato is in the same family as deadly nightshade. And I guess mm. the leaves look similar. And so everybody thought tomatoes were poisonous. And some tomato interest hired people to go around to different villages and stand in the village square and eat tomatoes in public, just to show like, you will not die if you eat tomatoes. <laughs> Similar, yeah, to similar your, tomato eating witch kind of thing. Yeah, demonstration. <laughs> so you, you bring the girls to your house, and you have, and you're like, okay. I sat down in the bathtub with a tampon. I put I put a tampon in, had them watch, I showed them how you put it in, and then I sat down in the bathtub. I was like, I am still a virgin. I am not stop having blood stopped up to my brain. I am fine. Your mothers are lying to you. And that's your such mothers a, that, are lying to you. That's radical in like five different ways. First of all, you're like I'm naked, shoving something up your. I'm vagina naked in front and of shoving. Girls. Yeah. Yeah. Doing a demonstration of how you shove something up your and vagina. Were you even they, menstruating at this point? I this guess was, you this, must have I started been, yeah. when I was 11, yeah. Oh, really? 11? Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this thing where you talked about your friend, it reminds me of when I was in college, uh, my ex girlfriend got pregnant and she wanted to have an abortion and she didn't have any money and she didn't know who to talk to. And she told me, and I called my parents, I didn't have any money either. And I called my parents and I, I said, uh, I need $500 and I need you not to ask me why. And they're like, no, we'll make the transfer in the morning. Then they never did ask why, you know? Mm, that's yeah, great. Yeah, my parents Your were parents are beautiful. Wonderful. Yeah, really nice people. Raised as Christians, you know, but like I don't even know what their, it's strange, I have no idea what their opinion is on abortion. Because they just never. They, they, they're in the they're in the film. I love them in the film. Oh, yeah. They're very sweet. Yeah, yeah, they are sweet. Yeah, it's funny to see them there, and they're already quite a bit older than they were, you know, in the film. They're aging quickly, but um, yeah, damn. So your course in life was set at a very young age. It sounds like you knew what your role in life was going to be. I, well, I was definitely really passionate about making a difference in Were you these in trouble in school, like in high school? Were you, did you get in a lot of trouble? Um, I was working hard to try to keep my head down and get a scholarship to get the hell out of that tiny shit town. So I was 
you know, passionate about making sure I aced my SATs and had great grades and right. getting out of there right. because I'd had sort of a taste of what the rest of the world was like. Right. Um, and didn't want to get stuck in that town working as a secretary, putting myself through, yeah. you know, state college or something. So um, I was able to do that. Um, but then I was sort of going off and uh, having lots of adventures with boys from other schools, other schools so that they didn't know how smart I was because that was an impediment uh, as a teenage girl. Really? Yeah. I had to be sort of undercover as, as not, <laughs> not the freakishly smart girl. Yeah. Uh, and hang out with the boys from other schools. Right, and you can play the game. Casilda gets that too. She's, you know, because she's not white in Spain, a lot of people assume she was like the maid or something. And, you know, and she's yeah. like, okay, all right, yeah, just keep it, keep it to yourself. Mm-hmm. That makes you more dangerous, though, you know? Right. You, you walk around in a uniform, everyone knows you're, you're a soldier, but if you're undercover, who knows what's going to happen? Undercover. Yeah, undercover. I've had. Uh, Two different opposing attorneys, uh, who are older guys, say, I- "I'm sorry, Your Honor, I wasn't I wasn't prepared uh, to answer these questions today. I didn't I didn't expect this much of <laughs> really this young woman." <laughs> this young woman. <laughs> I hope the judges are like, "Well, you're screwed, buddy." Yeah, yeah. Y- you should have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, this isn't like little league here. Come right. on, yeah. Cool. So, uh, where do people find you? Where do you? Was you, you have a website? What's your? Yeah, DianaAdamsLaw.net uh, follows Diana my Adams law firm. Law. Um, and I have a monthly email list, yeah. um, and keep people up to date on what I'm doing in terms of legal activism. Yeah. Um, and the start of my new nonprofit, Chosen Family Law Center, which will be helping people who are in, who are LGBTQ or polyamorous um, or platonic co-parents or people who, who want to create family in their own kind of way and want support with things like second parent adoption um, Mm. or securing their parenting rights. Um, So I'm really excited about that as a new opportunity because I get so many inquiries to help poly people in particular from around the country and and I'm not able to do that pro bono all the time. So now I'll be able to have that service uh, available for people. So um, I'm on Twitter at Diana Adams ESQ and also on Facebook. Esquire. Esquire. And you're a new mom as well. Yeah. Is that changing your, your approach at all? I mean, aside from just the time constraints and all that, but is, has it changed your legal approaches to anything? Not necessarily. I think it gives me even more nuance and passion behind the perspective that I had even before becoming a mother myself, that the kids need to come first and kids need stability yeah. um, in terms of the parental figures and the adults who are in their life, that, that once somebody right. becomes um, an important presence, maybe a home life presence in a child's life, this should not be somebody who's, who's you know, coming in and out. Um, and I, I see that with a lot of frustration in, you know, straight couple situations. I mean, you know, I've, in my past, I've dated, uh, you know, a divorced guy with, with a small child who, after dating for a month, would invite me to go away for them go away for, for the weekend with them, uh, with their five-year-old, as if I'm the new stepmom, but you've only known me for a month. Right. And when I bring that up, they say, but I'm head over heels for you. I would never, I'm not going to break up with you. Well, I may break up with you in two weeks. You don't right. know that. You don't right. know me that well. Right. Um, so needing to, to put our own uh, passions and desires and our own new relationship energy aside and just really prioritize what's best for these kids and making sure that we're introducing partners into kids' lives in a, in a time when we can really feel like we're past that initial passion stage and we know yeah. this person's going to stick around. Um, and you never know. You, you know it, a heterosexual, monogamous, nuclear family couple can absolutely break up in a year and get divorced. You never know. But I think that you can do quite a bit to anticipate and to negotiate and to plan and to make sure that everyone's really has an intention uh, to put kids first. I think the mistake, though, is to think that by with kids needing stability, that what they need are two different sex married parents, which is not what they need. Right. You know, it can be um, 
three polyamorous bear dads uh, as long as they're stable, right? right? As long as it's the same people. Um, it can be the, the uncle that you love that you live with. Um, it can be grandma who lives in your house with you and is your primary parent. It, it, what really is key is that we have consistency. So I'm really passionate about helping people to create families with intention um, so that they can create the family of their dreams and also make sure that they've thought things through enough so that in terms of their money, in terms of their children, in terms of their hearts, that they're making um, really good decisions. Yeah. Yeah, and I imagine going through this mediation process where everything's on the table, you're talking about different possibilities, different contingencies that can come up, that's going to result in a more stable situation just because you've talked stuff out. Absolutely. We often don't do that, and it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, I do what people might think of as premarital counseling, but I do that with a, a wide variety of people. Um, and, and it's amazing to me when people haven't talked things through, like whether or not they want to have kids, whether or not yeah. they you know, have strong feelings about how you raise children. Um, yeah. And I see that a lot with the, the straight couples who are getting divorced that I help through that process. And I hope that this level of intentionality and reflection and negotiation and realizing that family does not come uh, in, in a one-size-fits-all package, that we have many options for the ways that we have romantic relationships, the ways that we parent, the ways that we create home life. I would like to see that trickle back into the community of, of straight married couples so that people can actually have more of these conversations about what they want to create and not mm. feel like they're just on a treadmill where everybody's ending up in the same place. Right, right. I know that I, I did not know that was an option and for a long time thought I was just a weirdo who yeah. wasn't happy with my treadmill uh, when everybody else seemed to be really thrilled with the plan. I wasn't, I was not thrilled with the plan. Yeah. I, I thought if I, if I marry you know, some guy named Kevin and moved to the suburbs, I'm going to be <laughs> drinking too much and sleeping with my maid or something, you know? <laughs> Kevin. Poor Kevin. No, yeah, no, nothing to be, nothing wrong with guys named Kevin wearing loafers, but I, I just, I could tell that that uh, sort of traditional marriage life was not going to work for me. Yeah, yeah. So when's your book coming out? You know, once my uh, kid's a little bit older, yeah. I sort of was like, baby, baby or baby or book. So... The baby is now uh, off to daycare yeah. more often, and, and uh, now I'm excited about nonprofit and book. I kind of feel like, like this is uh, I, my thing with books. Like Sex at Dawn was supposed to come out three or four years before I finally got around to finishing it, you know. But it came when it came out. I feel like the culture was ready for it. Absolutely. And a book that you would write, I feel like the culture is ripening toward it. And in two, three years, somewhere in there, it'll be ready for it. I hope so. I yeah. want to make sure that the book comes out at that moment. It'll be ready yeah. when you're ready, I I've, think. I've been working I on it for a while. I believe in that. That's how I justify all my procrastination. Thank you. Thank you for justifying my procrastination. <laughs> it worked once. I Great. don't know. I'm, I won for one on Great. it, so maybe it'll work. Hey, you're a badass. Thank you. Thank you. So Thank, are you. Thanks for doing what you're doing now. Not just the podcast, but your, your presence in the world is great. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun. I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design t-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom, she'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at Carsey Blanton. 
Carsibelton.com, C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 